Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you are newer to our church, um, it's important for you to know that we're part of a church network, not a very big network. It's a small network of churches called the Thrive Network. And one of the big things we're doing um, in the, this year and moving forward is this thing called Thrive at Work. It's an initiative to help our church members integrate their faith on Sunday with their work Monday through Friday. And that's a really important connection to make because otherwise we compartmentalize our lives and live for God on one day of the week and for people or for ourselves all the other days of the week. And it all has to be integrated. So I, one of the things we're trying to do to keep awareness up is to have these bi-monthly prayer focuses where um, we're, we're featuring industry by industry and highlighting the different people in our congregations who are part of those industries and praying for them. And specifically how we can keep on praying for each other in industries that we don't work in. So I hope that was a blessing to you. <clears throat> I'm really thankful for all those in healthcare. You know, there's just such, such a comfort when you're not doing well and you finally get to the hospital, get to see someone in healthcare, and you feel like, all right, they know what they're doing. It's going to be okay. And, and I, I, I don't know if you realize just how comforting a feeling that is, even if there's limits to what they can do, just to know God has raised up people like that who have worked so hard to be trained. My name is Dave. It's my joy and privilege to serve as one of the pastors at Harvest. And a few weeks ago, our church went away for the weekend for a congregational retreat. And at that retreat, there was a sense that many of us came to the retreat um, really needing some recharging. We are like a phone at 3%. Uh, it still has a little juice, but you, you feel it. You feel how little is left. And so many of us came to the retreat wanting to meet with God. And there was one mishap after another at the retreat. And yet somehow through all of that opposition, all of those things that didn't go the way we planned, God showed up. And it was powerful. He showed up. And many of us walked away feeling a renewal of our hunger and our zeal for God. It was really encouraging to watch the church rally together. And so often what happens when we hear good messages, when there are... Um, really strong convictions that God gives us. Uh, we forget about them after the event, and we just sort of, life takes over, it leaks out, and we forget, and some of those convictions get left behind. And so one of the things we're doing this time is, I'm repeating the topic of each of the four retreat messages, but from another angle of approach. So last week, we talked about being recharged through our prayer life, how praying actually is one of the things God has given us to grow us and recharge us spiritually. This morning, I want to look at how we are recharged spiritually through worship. I did a little uh, amateur mathematics last night, and by my calculation, since I, was a t since I became a Christ follower, I have personally participated in around 2,500 worship services. That's a lot of church, man. 2,500 worship services. Not all of them were on Sundays. There are times when I went to two retreats in the span of like eight days. So that was a lot of church just in one week. So if, and by the way, I've also worshiped God on every continent except Antarctica. So I'm still holding out hope that before I die, someone will invite me to the research camp in Antarctica and I can worship God on every continent of this planet. Please, God, let that come to pass. And I say that not to boast, but to say I've seen expressions of worship in so many different places and settings, cultures, and church styles. And there's a lot of nuance, a lot of difference, but overall, there's a commonality to what it means to worship God. And so I've seen and experienced so much worship in the church setting that if worship were an event or an activity, I think I could argue I've become something like an expert on worshiping God. Would you agree that 2,500 times doing anything makes you at least passively good at it? I would say I've spent 
a good 5,000 hours at least of my life in formal worship. But here's the thing I'm learning is that worship, while we often speak about it like it's an event or an activity, like, did you worship yesterday? Did you go to worship or did you worship? I really believe that true worship of God, true worship of anything is not an event or an activity. Now, the event and the activity promote worship, but real worship is not the activity and real worship is not the event. Real worship is a response to someone or something that bursts out of us. Do you, do you get the difference there? That worship is not this thing I do called worship, and worship is not a place or a setting or a time set apart for the activities of worship, but it is that response I feel when I'm in the presence of someone or something worthy of that devotion and that expression of worship. That's why I think some of the most powerful and memorable experiences of worship in my life are not when I've had to think about it or force myself or get psyched up, but when there was a sense of God's presence and power so real that worship just burst out of me. I couldn't suppress myself. It's like if if you've ever been in an audience at a live event, and isn't there just something about a live event? I mean, you could jam at maximum volume on your phone with your headphones, and you could hear music and experience it, but there's something about a live performance that gets to you. That's why people will spend 200 bucks to go see Hamilton Live. You could get all of the songs on iTunes for like 10 bucks. Why would you spend 200? Because there's just something. It's not just the visual. It's being there. It's transcendent. There's something about when the mediocre opening act winds down and the headliner begins to take the stage. That feeling when Bruce Springsteen or One Direction, or the kids are not here, I don't have to mention that. You know, that, that band which you just love, which you could almost say you worship, is in the same building, in the same room with you, and they just took the stage, and you're about to go black out because you're apoplectic with appreciation. It's that moment when the movie you've been waiting for, the opening credits roll, the previews are done, and you're about to lose your mind. It's how it felt in the old Chicago stadium back in the 80s when we used to go and watch the Bulls play, and they did the boom, 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 boom. You know, they did the whole Alan Parsons intro, and all the beginners, the, the starters came up. But when they announced Michael Jordan, it wasn't just the excitement. I started feeling like a Pentecostal, you know, just something. Like, I don't know why. I'm not on the floor playing. Why do I? But something about when he came onto the floor, I was like, everything's going to be okay. We're going to win. Our city is the greatest city on earth. We haven't felt that in a really, really, really long time. But man, if you had the privilege of watching them play live in that era, being in that old stadium, the smaller house, there was something. It's that feeling, that feeling of being present in something that is so powerful and real and exciting this reaction bursts out of you. You don't have to say, now, when Michael Jordan comes out, everybody, hey, guys, whole row, let's shout, okay? You don't do that. It just happens. That moment captures well the feelings and emotions associated with what God calls real worship. And I want to <clears throat> draw from a fairly long passage of Scripture. It's too long that I'm not going to spend the time reading the whole thing. I'm going to encourage you when you get home today to spend about 10 minutes just reading through this whole passage in its entirety from beginning to end. It's Revelation 4 to 5. I want to interact with pieces of it to show you that when we worship this way, when our worship of God is not a forced activity or a scheduled event, but it is an irrepressible response to God who is present with us, when that happens, it affects us, it changes us in some important ways. The first way it changes us is our posture. That may not sound terribly encouraging or life-giving, but I think you'll see by the time I'm done with this point that the change in our posture that takes place when we worship is so important to our spiritual well-being. You know, we have this gesture in our culture 
You know, you know that gesture? When someone just kills it at a business pitch and you're like, wow, they're going to buy it for sure. How do you do that? How do you just know what slide is coming next? How are you so smooth? You don't stumble. You don't say, um, you just, and they're like, there's some people who just have it. And when you see it in any setting, whether it's a business meeting or a sports arena, a stage where someone's singing, when you see someone do something really, really well, that's the gesture we make. It's like, <laughs> we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Are you familiar with that gesture? It's such an interesting thing. It's not a religious thing at all. It's just an admission. It's like this. When you see someone who's kind of close to your skill level, you're like, whatever. You, you turn into an automatic hater, right? Like, yeah, don't act so big. I could almost do what you do. So that's how I actually feel when I watch the Windy City Bulls. Is I'm nowhere near that. But I'm like, I feel like, you know, a really good team could probably hang with those guys. When you see the NBA, you're like, the gap between D-League and NBA? Massive! Just, it's like a whole other thing. All due respect to the Windy City. They try really hard. I'm just saying... You shouldn't be able to hear a whispered conversation in a crowded sports arena, but it's how quiet it is there. There's just something about when we see mediocrity, we maybe fist bump when they do something great, but when you see someone who is transcendent, someone who does it in a way or at a level you can't even fathom, this happens. You don't just high-five, like, in, in a couple years I'll get there, but man, that was pretty good. It's, I'm never going to get there. In my wildest dreams, after a thousand reincarnations, I won't get to where you are. What you have is almost divine. It's something I cannot fathom. I think that's at the heart of real worship. Real worship erupts out of us when we acknowledge that the one we are worshiping is not someone kind of like me. As Jane Osborne once sang many decades ago, if God were a slob like one of us, why bother? If God were the God we often conceive of in our day-to-day life, a God who can be scolded, negotiated with, rebuked, ignored, if God was the kind of God who's so small the way we've often made him, why bother coming to worship at all? Why bother even complaining to him? If our God has become so small, he's a God worth ignoring because he's not a God at all. True worship erupts when we rightly see God for who he actually is. He's near us, but he's also impossibly far from us. The nearness of God is only a powerful thing when you realize how great God actually is, and he has come near, come to us. You know, in Revelation 4 to 5, John is given a breathtaking, staggering vision of the throne room of heaven, of a great worship service that takes place in the throne room of the living God. The vision described in Revelation 4 to 5, I just hope somebody with an incredible imagination will one day try to capture it on film. And I say film because I've looked at probably 200 paintings this week trying to depict the throne room of God, and there's no way a static image can possibly do justice to something at this magnitude. I hope when we have virtual reality everywhere that someone will try to simulate this vision. I just hope because it just seems at a scale so great, I don't think we have the media available to help us grasp how incredible the setting was. I think some of the hyperbole in John's recording of the vision is because as an ancient man... He was struggling to find words to describe what he was seeing. If his head count of the angels is to be taken literally, in Revelation 5, he says there were, I think this is just his way of saying, holy cow, there's a lot of angels in the room. But he says 10,000 upon 10,000, 10,000 times. Do you know what 10,000 times 10,000 actually is? Math nerds, quick tell me. That's 100 million 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million angels. That's a big choir. Let me show you a picture. This is Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. Those crazy dudes bought the Houston Astros, the Houston Rockets old stadium. It's an NBA stadium. They bought it and they do church there every single Sunday, multiple worship services. That's crazy. That's just a, a local church, okay? That's breathtaking to see 
That is about 16,800 people. So I want you to think about a room, a throne room, with the capacity to hold hundreds of millions of living beings singing in unison. I mean, what would that feel like? What would that look like? I think it's important that we can't, we wrestle with the fact I can't actually imagine it. I can't imagine it. You know, we, we like to sing, I can only imagine. Yeah, I actually can't. There, there are dimensions of eternity and infinity that no human mind can conceive. This is a room so vast, it would dwarf that by millions. Just millions. Think about that. In this room, vast and filled with angelic beings singing praise, the entire assembly focuses on one solitary figure seated on the throne in the middle of the room. I always thought, how would that affect my psychology if I were the star on a stage and tens of thousands of people are screaming and have paid hundreds of dollars just to watch me do my job? How would that affect me? And is that right for all of us mammals to go to such great lengths to watch one other mammal just be a mammal? It's how desperately we need to worship that we will go through all that just to feel anything that touches transcendence. And yet there is in the center of heaven's throne room a being so great, so worthy of reverence and worship that he sits in the middle of this vast assembly and every being without question and distraction has their eyes and hearts fixed only on that one being. It's a stark reminder that worship is not a feeling or an experience. It requires an object. Worship isn't just something we do within ourselves. It requires someone or something to be worshipped. And in heaven, the focal point of all worship is God himself seated on a throne. John describes, John describes that from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. It's really interesting to me how often that is the wording, the language used when ancient man encountered God in a visceral way and tried to describe what the feeling was like. It was as if lightning was everywhere and there was usually fire, smoke, and really loud thunder. You know, have you ever been outside in a thunderstorm and just um, felt it, the deep bass that rattles your bones and your teeth? Have you ever just stood outside in a thunderstorm? Pastor Frank was telling me uh, recently he spoke up in Wisconsin at a retreat and there was an hour-long lightning storm. Now, he wasn't right under it. He's not a dummy. He was just seeing it from a distance. But it was like a light show that went on for an hour. It was God showing off what he can do when he decides to turn the lights on and off. And it's breathtaking to see something like that. John's trying to describe, I looked at the throne, and it was just like there was something there, a presence that was otherworldly. The thing about being outside and seeing something like that right out in the open is that the awe of it The power of the experience is not that you somehow identify with and feel greater or bigger. It's how small it makes you feel. How you realize there are things and forces and powers and realities so much greater than you. And it's that feeling of being small that actually produces awe in us. There's, you know, society's telling us every day, you're great, you're awesome, you're the best, you're worth it, and you deserve it. And we're always trying to lift ourselves up, make ourselves greater, thinking that's the comfort the human heart needs, is to become God ourselves, to be told, you are everything you need. You are, everything is in you. Some religions don't even play with go, You are God. God is just a construct for help, to help you see in the mirror that you are everything you need right there. Believe in yourself. That's the world's message, is to tell you, we don't need God. You can become God. You are the greatest being there is. There is. That is not a comforting message, because I know me, and I suck, and I know you. I don't want to say you suck, but you know what you do. If you are the greatest being you know, you're doomed. It's over. Amen? Thank you, sister. Yeah. 
Thank you for saying out loud what we all need to be thinking. If you are the greatest being you know, let's give up. How can I be the center of everything? There is a beautiful comfort that comes from knowing there is someone actually great enough to be worthy of worship. Someone greater than me who's got it under control, who can do things I can't, who has worth I don't have, who has beauty I can't fathom. If we don't see that, we will worship ourselves inevitably and we will grow in despair. Real worship cannot be fueled through effort only. It comes from encountering a God who is like that. So great, we, can, we struggle to find words to describe what it's like to be in his presence. Around this throne is a ring of 24 lesser thrones. Because every boss needs a posse, right? I mean, you've got to have your crew. So God, sitting in the middle throne, has a posse. 24 elders seated on 24 thrones in a ring around that central figure. These 24 elders... Scholars have debated for centuries, who are these guys? Partly just from, from sort of that awe of like, who gets this? Of all the billions of humans that have lived, who gets to be the top 24? I mean, that's just awe-inspiring. There are a few names I think are probably there. Like, I bet you Moses and David have a seat. I think Paul's probably snuck one in there. And who knows, maybe even Timothy. You, you get these ideas of names, right? But think about it. Of the, the 12 on each, some theorize 12 from each testament. Some, there's a lot of theories out there. Whoever they were, this is the A-team. These elders are dressed in white and have crowns of gold on their head, and they're seated on thrones. All of these are symbols, images of power, honor, and status. Whoever they were in their earthly life, they were no slouches. These are men and, and perhaps women, it, it doesn't specify, these elders were beings who in their earthly life did something that echoed through eternity and got them a seat in the inner circle surrounding God. So another way of saying it is, of all the human beings who have ever worshipped God, these are our all-time, all-history starters. This is the all-star team, the Pro Bowl of knowing Christ. And these 24 elders, every time God is worshipped, do the same thing over and over. They fall on the ground in front of the throne. And they don't bow maybe the way we Westerners bow, still leaving some sort of, you know, this is the way a knight bows before the king. They bow like this. That's the, that's the way people bowed in the ancient world. It's such a lowering of myself that I'm eating floor. I'm, I'm like on the ground, prostrate in front of that person that I'm trying to lower myself. It's the ultimate way of saying, I cannot share even the altitude of your head right now. And then they take this, so they've already stepped down from their thrones, which is one act of humility. Then they get on the ground, which is another, and then they take their crowns off their heads, and they lay that crown, and that crown was hard-earned, and they lay it down. All of this is what real worship looks like. In fact, I would argue that you cannot actually worship God apart from this posture of humility. And when we truly encounter God in worship, one of the first things we'll notice is God becomes great and we see ourselves truly as we ought to and without losing any sense of dignity or worth, we are able to lower ourselves before God, not because we're so low, but because he's so high. The point of worship is not to debase yourself. It's to behold a God so great, no matter who you are, even if you're one of the top 24 human beings to ever live. Even then, the irrepressible urge, the natural response to the presence of God is to get off your throne, hit the floor, and take off your crowns. That is the posture that accompanies true worship because true worship is seeing God for who he is. You'll know you've worshiped when that's the posture you find stirring in your heart. It's not, I'm terrible, I'm low, but God is great. God is great. And because he's great, knowing him 
such a privilege. It's not the posture that blesses us. It's the presence and power of God so great that I realize who I have in my life, who watches over me. There's another thing that changes when we truly worship God, and that is our passions change. Anyone who's known me for a while knows Jeannie and I, we love football, okay? We really love football. In fact, we almost, she, in fact, she's the one who started this conversation. Should we get the Dish Network NFL Sunday ticket? Until I found out how much it was, it was like, it's like 60 bucks a month and you're locked in for half the year. Too expensive. It's not worth it, maybe. But that's how much we love football. We, we almost did it. But I have to tell you, for as much as I love football, I find preseason football excruciating. It looks like football, but it's not football. I'm watching, and it's like watching guys pretend to do something. They're trying to earn a spot on the team. It's always the second-string guys playing, but they're also trying not to get injured and destroy their season in the first few games that don't count. And there's something about watching that level of averageness, lessness, that it's not the same excitement as a season opener or the playoff games. In order to truly worship and have passion in that worship, we need to see something transcendent and great. I love the depiction of worship in heaven in Revelation chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. Listen to what it says. All these millions of beings gathered in that throne room are shouting one thing in unison. So they're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then not only were the angels singing, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. In other words, every living creature on the earth says in unison, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Those are powerful words. When I say them by myself, they're powerful. But there's something about when people all together do something. Have you ever watched these large choreographed dance routines? Where, Especially in Korean K-pop, where there's like the Korean... Boy bands and stuff, they're not just like four, like, you know, the the American boy bands are four guys. The Korean boy bands are like 35 guys, 52 girls. It's like an army, like a platoon, and they're doing all these cool choreographed things. And I kept, every time I watch those, I think, how dumb that dance routine would look if it was just one of them doing that move. It's so lame, but you put 50 people together doing the same thing, it looks different. I don't know why. But multitudes doing it in synchronicity makes it seem cooler than that one person just trying real hard by themselves to do this lame old routine. So when you dance alone, you need a lot more flourish. There's just something about all of us together. It's powerful to watch. Years ago, when I was a college student, I attended the Urbana Mission Conference. It was held in what is now the State Farm Center. It was called Assembly Hall back in the day. Do you know it's the third largest stadium in the state of Illinois? And we sat in there, 14,000 other college students, and we sang Amazing Grace a cappella. I don't know if you've ever heard 14,000 young, stirred, revived voices, young people with their whole futures that had nothing to lose, touched by the Spirit of God, singing Amazing Grace, not just as worship, but as a testimony. Well, I... It it was one of the most moving moments of singing to God I've ever been a part of in my whole life. And I just think, what would it sound like to hear a hundred million angels and every living creature on the earth join in one voice to say to God who he truly is, to be a part of that, to be sitting there and add your voice to the voice of every living creature who can say with honesty, There's no one greater than you. What was fueling this passionate worship? Because if you look at this verse, you'll notice there are exclamation marks 
after each of those verses. Those exclamation marks are also inferred from the vocabulary that's used. In other words, this is not just the Pledge of Allegiance you, you recited in first grade class every morning. I pledge allegiance to the flag. There, the hundred million angels aren't going, worthy is the lamb. This is how many times does Worthy is the lamb who was blah, blah, yada, yada, yada. It's not that at all. The exclamation marks say this is not just worship as drudgery, worship as duty. It's passion. They're shouting these words. They're shouting them. And why are they shouting? See, I think the greatness of God spurs us to a posture of humility. But I don't think the greatness of God alone gets us to worship with passion. The greatness of God stirs awe and makes us lower ourselves. But what stirs up this kind of fierce passion towards another being? Well, let me ask you in your life, who are you most passionate about? Who are you most fiercely loyal to? Would you say, if I had only one kidney left, not even a spare one, the last one, I'd still give it to you and die. Who is there in your life that you hold so dear that whatever they need, if you had it, it would be theirs, no question, no hesitation, no pause? And what is it between you and that person or those people that makes you so unflinchingly, unquestioningly loyal to them, so passionate about your commitment to that person? Do you know what it always is without fail in every instance? It's love. Real love, true love, sacrificial love, committed love, enduring love, selfless love from one being to another always stirs this kind of passion. The greatness of God changes our posture in worship to humility. But it's the love of God that stirs up the passion, the loyalty, the fierceness, the emotion. We always worship most, devote ourselves most to those who have loved us best. I'm that way to my parents and to my brother and to my wife. In a similar way, I'm that way towards my children, but it's different. I feel a responsibility towards my children. But thus far, my children haven't done for me the things that these others have. It's not like they know nothing. They they touch my heart regularly. But my parents, my brother, my wife, some of my friends, my partners in ministry here, they have loved me in a selfless way that if I could tell you the story, some of the, the leaders sitting in this room, the way you have loved me, when I think about your lives, I don't question. I I wish I had like 50 kidneys because I'd give a bunch of them out right now. If if you needed a kidney, I wish I was like a kidney factory, a cluster of kidneys. I I don't know why for some reason giving away a kidney has become the symbolic measure of my devotion to someone. There are so many people I adore and I'm committed to because you have loved me in such a selfless way. I believe that's what really holds our hearts to Jesus. It's not just that he's great, that he's great, but he's also loved us in a mind-blowing extent with a love we can hardly imagine. Look at what John 5, or Revelation 5, 9 says. And they sing a new song. Here's what they say now. They switch choruses, and the song explains why. This figure seated on the throne is so worthy of such devotion. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and tongue. See, this is the reason that we worship. The reason we worship with such passion is not just because God is great, but because he has loved us with such a selfless love. The love we feel for God is not because of the latest gift he's given us, the latest kindness he's shown us. The love we feel for God is because when we had no right to dream of being saved, he saved us. When we were as unlovable as we could imagine ourselves to be, he loved us. 
unlike every other person who eventually gets to a point where they roll their eyes, they turn their backs, they walk away from us. He never did that, not once. You don't know anyone who has loved you like that, ever. Not even the person you're married to, not even your children, not even the parents who brought you into the world. No one in this world has loved you with a love like that. That's what unconditional love is. And there's only one being who has ever loved you and me unconditionally. The honest truth is everyone else who's ever tried to love in all of the existence of the universe has loved conditionally, but not our God. He loved us when we were ugly and far from him. And so while the greatness of God lowers our posture, it's the love of God that stirs passion in our hearts for him. I am devoted. I have to be in awe of him because of his greatness, but I'm devoted to him because I know how much he's loved me. I got to finish here. So let me just tear through this last thing. I really believe true worship also changes our priorities. It's been often observed that the English word worship is rooted to the old English compound word worthship. In other words, worship is a declaration of worth. And how do you define what worth is? To me, worth is defined, if, a math, if you're a math nerd, here's a, an equation for you, a formula. Greatness plus love equals worth. Okay? Greatness plus love equals worth. The greatness of God that drives my posture to a low place and the love of God that erupts in my heart as fierce loyalty. Those two qualities of God together tell me how worthy he is, that he's the greatest being in the universe, but he's the one who has loved the least greatest being the most. It's that coupling of his transcendence and his fierce love that drives us to recognize in him how worthy he is of everything we have. Worth is a declaration of value. And it's interesting, in the old days when my main issue about health was trying not to, not to become, um, you know, unhealthy, a lot of cavities, gaining too much weight, being lethargic. So I would always think it's not worth the calories. But ever since I developed gout, I have a whole new saying, it's not worth the gout pain. So I'm not supposed to drink alcohol, and I'm not supposed to eat a lot of red meat. Probably both good things to have imposed on a person's life. But every now and then, someone will offer me a glass of wine from a place so exotic and so expensive. They go, you have to drink. I'm like, it's worth a little pain, I think. I'm going to try that. Or they'll, I, I, recently in Philadelphia, uh, this brother who's a praise leader at the church I was preaching at, he invited us to his house and he made a steak. Once in a while, you see a steak that makes you feel emotional. Like, I just saw it and went, if I don't eat that, I'm going to regret it for all the rest of my life. And so I didn't have my gout pills with me, but I just said, you know what? Come what may, I'm going to eat that steak. And I ate all 16 ounces of that steak. The next day was murder, but man, you know what I said? It was worth it. See, worth, worth is a declaration of value. It's a way of saying, this is my priority. I would, it's worth it for me to forfeit this in order to gain that. I will forfeit pain-free comfort to gain the experience of that deliciousness. It's worth it. In all our lives, on a daily basis, we're making declarations of worth, and our declarations of worth are really exposing our declaration of the relative value of things, our priorities. Right? If you value work and you've had a rough week of work and you know you need to rest and that's the most important thing, then many a Sunday morning you're going to lay in bed going, should we go to church? <laughs> it's not worth it. You won't say it's not worth it. You'll say, i got to guard myself because I have people to take care of Monday. And so you won't ever come out and say, he's not worth it. But every day, right, whether it's in that kind of religious setting or just every day, do I want to go there? Do I want to give to that? Every day we're giving statements of the relative worth of different things in our lives. There's no question all of us operate by a strict code of priorities. And what worship does for us is it reorients all of our priorities around the central primary importance of God in our human lives. 
What you'll notice about these elders is that one of the great acts of devotion and worship they do is they take their crowns off their heads. Crowns are always a symbol of status when they're given by the deity, when they're given by the king. Every lesser crown is an earned crown. The only crown that is a right is the one that goes down to the the bloodlines. But for all the lesser officials, every crown they get is a statement of what they did to earn it. These 24 elders did something in earthly life that purchased for them an eternal crown, a place of great honor. And one of their acts of devotion is to take that crown off their head. And what they say is, you are worthy of this. This crown which came to me at the cost of my very life, this was a martyr's crown I got. I was boiled while I was still alive, shouting the worth of my Savior. That's how I found myself in the afterlife. In even that horrific cost, I lay this crown down and say, only one being was ever worthy of such sacrifice. You are worthy of it. And they lay their crowns down. Here's the amazing news. The New Testament tells us that we also will one day wear a crown in heaven if we have lived in a way that honors God over the duration of our lives here on earth. Remember that great scene in the movie Gladiator? What you do here on this battlefield will ring through eternity. That always stirs me up like, amen. That's such a true statement that what we do here echoes through eternity. 2 Timothy 4.8 reveals that for those who have longed for his appearing, that's code for those who have held onto their faith through the whole of their lives. They've never given up this hope that he's coming back. I will wait. I will wait for you. Remember the last of the Mohicans? Wait for me. I will find you. How different that was than the end of Castaway when the girl who kept him alive on that island, he comes, she's already moved on. and like That was heartbreaking for me. Sorry for the 30-year-old spoiler, but it's this idea that we held on. We waited. We kept believing. And so for those people who run the distance, faithful to God, holding on to that hope, there is a crown of righteousness. For the one who suffers the trials of this life and refuses to dishonor God, they don't let the trials of life make them turn against God. They consistently turn towards him. They reach up to him for help and deliverance and comfort when there is no help to be found. For those, they will get a crown of righteousness. I'm sorry, the crown of life. And finally, for those leaders who have spent their life taking care of the people God loves, who have spent a whole lifetime prioritizing others' needs first, putting others before themselves, serving the needs of people before they ever took care of their own needs. For people who have lived their lives like that, the promise of the great chief shepherd is, when I come back, you will receive a crown of glory for a lifetime of faithfulness. It's not just the elders in heaven who wear a crown. We also can wear a crown when we get to heaven. But because we're not in a royalty-based culture, the idea of wearing a crown doesn't seem that exciting. Can I have a Tesla instead? Uh, Lord, is there any way to trade up? No crown, just give me an open road and Tesla or an Aventador or something. Maybe let me dunk something. But here's the thing about the crown. The crown is not an end in, unto itself. The, the glory of the crown is not found in wearing it. The great worth of that crown is found in taking it off and saying, you are worth this. Everything that, that went into getting this crown, it was for you. Let me give you a story that maybe I've shared years ago that may be familiar to some of you, but it, it, I think emotionally illustrates, and I'll close with this. When I was in my last quarter of seminary, I was preparing to propose to Jeannie, and I had no money, and I needed to buy a ring. I knew that much. I wasn't going to do the uh, sandwich bag, twisty tie as a placeholder. A lot of my seminary friends, they go, oh, I can't afford it. So she knows someday. I'll... That's lame, dude. Come on. <laughs> so I saved up money, and the way I earned that money was I worked the night shift at a 7-Eleven during my heaviest quarter. I set a seminary record. I, had, I carried 29 credit hours. 11 courses in one quarter. No one's done that before or since. Better recognize. And 
It happened to be the quarter where I made my best grades, too. But I decided that's a semester I'm going to study and work because I need to get some money. So I worked a night shift, and it was the worst night shift ever. After nine months of working, I managed to save $1,000. Now, I know that if you saw Jeannie's engagement ring, you'd be like, oh, it's cute. It was two-thirds of a carrot. Not even a full carrot, two-thirds of a carrot. But I'll tell you something. When I got down on my knee and I gave her that ring and she said yes and I got to put it on her finger, that ring felt like it was a bowling ball. <laughs> like that $1,000 was the hardest $1,000 I have ever earned in my life. And what got me through all those nights and all those following days without sleep was thinking about that day, imagining the day when I wouldn't say, look how great I am. But all that struggle was for you. See, I was able to say that day, it was worth it because she was worth it. I had never found someone like that before. Someone I could imagine for the rest of my life I will be with. And when I did find that person, there was no price so great Every struggle was worth it because one day I'd be able to say to her, you are worth it. And that's just my earthly marriage, my mate for this short journey, the blink of an eye while I live here on earth. We'll get to heaven and she will not be my wife, she will be my sister. Makes me a little sad, but you know who I do live for now? And I hope I can say this truthfully. It has not been easy to choose the path I've chosen in life. And I know for many of you, you can say the same. It's really hard to say yes when it's easier to say no. It's really hard to hold on to faith when life just keeps slapping you in the face. That crown of righteousness doesn't come easily. It's really hard to suffer and not give up on God, not give up on life especially when you cry out for deliverance and deliverance doesn't come. It is not easy to hang on when you're suffering. That crown of life doesn't come cheap. And I can tell you as a pastor that it is not easy to put the needs of others consistently first. To take care of God's people before you take care of yourself. Many of you are in that place right there with me and we're doing it together and you know that that crown of glory will have come at a great cost. And yet, I don't want to sit in heaven with a stack of crowns on my head thinking about the good old days. What's the point of that? The glory of those crowns, so hard fought and hard earned, will be realized when I bow before God and take that crown off and say, all that pain and struggle, all that self-denial, you are worthy. I'm so glad I have a crown to take off my head on this day when I see how great, how loving, how worthy you are. On this day, thank God I have something to offer. To say to you that this earthly life, I did not amass riches where moths will eat away, where rust will take it. I stored up for myself treasures in heaven that were eternal. These crowns I now cast at your feet so that I can finally see on this day You were worthy. It was worth it because you were worth it. This week, you'll have so many opportunities to worship God. I mean, I've attended 2,500 worship services, but I've worshiped God a lot more than 2,500 times. That's the beauty of what Jesus has done. He has made access to God so powerful and so close. So this week, I'm going to encourage you not to think of worship just as an activity or as an event, but go looking for God in your world this week. Go to the places where you're likely to see his greatness. Listen to people who are struggling and ask them to tell you their story and how they're coping. Most of us want to run the other way when a friend tells, tells you, I have cancer. 
I just lost my loved one. And you say, oh, so uncomfortable. I don't know if I can step into that. I don't know what to say in times like this. Don't say anything. Ask, where is God right now for you? What are you learning? How can I help you? What, what do you want to cry out to him? And what you'll often find as you look for God in the hidden corners of your world is you will see his greatness. You will see his love for people in the most unexpected places. Recently, we heard the heartbreaking news that a very close friend of ours was diagnosed with cancer. And I thought that would crush us, and it really did. But watching the way she has gone through it has revealed the greatness of God to us. Recently, many of us said goodbye to our beloved children, <laughs> dropped them off on campus. Two of, two of the families, we did it together. Thank God. I was glad we were there for each other. I thought it was going to be really hard to watch that goodbye. But I had an opposite reaction. I was really blessed to see the fierceness of a parent's love. There's no love in the world quite like that love. It is not automatic. It's a gift when it's given to a child. That child's got a fighting chance because of love like that. And to see it so rawly expressed blessed my heart. It touched me. You look for God in his greatness and his love and his worth, you will find him everywhere around you. And when you see him, I think you'll find that you'll worship. Not because you must, but because you cannot do anything else but worship. I'm going to invite you to just join me right now in prayer. <clears throat> Time is short, so I'm going to ask us to say just this one simple prayer. Can we do this one simple thing together? Let's pray. God, this week, I'm going to look for you. Please show yourself in my life. I don't want to worship as a forced thing. I want to worship as a reaction to you. So give me an encounter with you. Let me see your greatness so that it inspires awe. Let me see your love so that it inspires passionate loyalty. And let me see your worth so that it scrambles all of my priorities, my values. Can we just pray that? Ask him to show up. Commit to look for him. Ask him to show up. Let's do that together right now. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.